1: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the intuitively we know that calendar years are just an arbitrary timekeeping device, but 2016 still intensely sucked edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, two segments. First, I'm joined by my colleagues Alex Skaggs and Matt Klein on Alphaville to recap the year in finance and economics. And in the second segment, I speak with Joan Williams, a law professor and researcher who wrote a widely discussed article in Harvard Business Review on what people don't get about the white working class in the U.S. and U.K., including the observation that the working class resents other professionals but admires the rich. What's that about? And I'm here now in our New York studios, joined by my Alphaville colleagues, Alex Gags and Matt Klein. Guys, how are you?
2: Hello, I'm good.
1: Good. Thanks for having me. Spoken with such enthusiasm. Thank you. (laughs) Guys, I want to start with a general reflection. All right. When we started the year, we were expecting turmoil in China. And in fact, we started with turmoil in China. We didn't know if it would subside. It did. Uh, We had abysmal, seemingly bottomless recessions in Russia and Brazil. It turns out that they have, in fact, bottomed out or seem to have bottomed out. We ended up with Brexit. We had Trump elected. We actually had moderate growth in Europe. Japan and the U.S. ended up turning around a bad first half to record a very strong third quarter, right? So it seems like we avoided all of the doomiest scenarios Uh, for the markets and for the global economy in 2016 that we could have reasonably expected and which many people did quite reasonably expect at the beginning of the year, right? And yet, we also had Brexit. We also had the election of Trump. If you'd added those two things on top of everything else that people expected at the start of the year, you would have, I think, had quite a few forecasts for at the very least a recession in the US uh, and very possibly a recession throughout the developed world at the very least. And yet, risk assets ended up doing pretty well. The global economy itself seems to be humming along. Uh, leading indicators for growth next year are looking quite fine, you know, if not exactly healthy. So what do you think happened? And are you surprised by the outcome, despite the turmoil that we saw in the realm of politics and maybe for some of us uh, internally, emotionally? Alex, you first.
2: Oh, man, that's a good question. I think a lot of the early panic over emerging markets i thought was a little bit overdone just because people tend to think about emerging markets like you said you know from their from a western perspective but what i found interesting was that the you know the chinese government obviously you know stepped in and sort of like stopped you know the the sort of disinflation or the crash that was in progress but what's interesting is that in the course of doing that they sort of slowed down their own redirection like internally, you know, they were they were trying to change from like this big outward looking industrial economy to a more consumer driven economy. And it's funny because the slowing down of that almost coincides with what we've seen politically in the US. I mean, China was a big, a big talking point in the election. And and it was the Chinese export driven, economic growth that people were were taking issue with because they were seeing that, you know, it was sort of undercutting US growth. So it's interesting that those two things do sort of coincide. It'll be interesting to see whether those change next year.
1: That's a great point about China and how it was in the process of rebalancing. Essentially to stop the bleeding this year, it had to slow, if not outright stall that process of rebalancing. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is that they papered over the problem for a little while and that's been reflected in markets and also to some extent in the chinese economy itself but it hasn't solved china hasn't solved its fundamental underlying problems.
2: Yeah exactly and from a growth perspective i mean that helps china. The the balance of trade aspect i think is is still really important and the ability of you know municipalities to take on debt. But it is interesting because i if i had to guess i mean i don't know this myself but i would think that they sort of recognize that people are moving towards a less globalized world and that's going to make it tougher for them to sort of keep those huge imbalances of trade.
1: Matt, Alex just covered China. Uh, What did you think about the year that was and were you surprised by how well, frankly, things turned out for the global economy and for markets?
0: Yeah, I think part of the starting point is to bear in mind that at the beginning of the year, people were extremely freaked out, arguably more so than was justified by fundamentals that you know, spreads on high yield bonds were over 10 percentage points but to get you get to that i think they they peaked around february they were definitely helped out by as alex was saying china essentially turning on the gas again or stepping off the brake, whatever metaphor you prefer, commodity prices. I mean, oil was like $25 a barrel back then. Now it's what, 55 something. Oil long. and other commodities right. have also... Right, and that had all these rebound effects. So, you know, we're talking about Brazil and Russia. I mean, these countries were getting hammered in part because they were big suppliers for China for things like Oil and iron and so forth, and they got a big, effectively a bailout as a consequence of the change in Chinese policy. Uh, you look at the price of coal. I think it's some coal price. I mean, so there's metallurgic versus thermal coal, but I, I can't remember which one. But I think it tripled in the you know since the summer. I mean, this is a, just a huge windfall for producers, Australia is another big beneficiary of it. So I think the starting point at the beginning of the year is a big reason why things turned out okay. I mean if you were to step back in time, say beginning of twenty fourteen and say like this is what the growth outcomes for twenty sixteen were going to be, people would say that's kind of unremarkable. I mean US growth in twenty sixteen has actually been quite a bit slower than it was a couple of years ago. There has been a real slowdown in in growth, both in consumption and investment. Um, not so much in government purchases, but I mean, the two big domestic demand components. So there has been a slowdown. It's just that compared to, I think, people absolutely being terrified of a recession, things turned out okay.
1: Sure. Worth also noting that there was a bit of a divergence between the growth numbers and the performance of the labor market, which once again, I think, was fairly healthy this year.
0: That's right. Although it's also interesting that relative to the past, when you were having a big drawdown in the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate this year actually was flat most of the time. I mean, there was a there was a drop against this past month, but in general it was pretty flat. And part of that's a function of rising participation, which is good. It suggests that a lot of the decline that we saw is potentially reversible. But it does also, you know, it sort of fits in with a broader narrative of starting from a perspective that was not the beginning of this year when everyone was terrified, growth in twenty sixteen was Disappointing.
1: Yeah, real quick, to follow up on something Alex just said uh, about China, the idea that the fundamental problems weren't really addressed, but the Chinese government took some measures to at least staunch the turmoil, the bleeding, or again, whatever metaphor you want to use. Your thoughts on Brexit and the idea that it turned out not to be the immediate economic catastrophe that everybody was expecting, but might still be a longer term, slow moving economic catastrophe nonetheless.
0: So the argument that Brexit would be an immediate catastrophe was that As soon as you have this incredible uncertainty about what Britain's trading relationship would be with its largest partner, which is the EU, that businesses would stop investing, they might lay off workers, that would then redound to personal consumption going down, all this other stuff, and then you'd lead to kind of an immediate slowdown. And that's not what happened. Uh, There were some survey data showing that businesses were afraid, but in practice, the job market was basically fine, business investment was basically fine, the GDP figures, you wouldn't have known there was a shock. So then the question is, well, how does it show up in the future? And again, part of it is we don't actually know what's going to happen. There are still people, I don't think they're reasonable, but there are people who think that you know Brexit's actually not going to occur for some reason, that, the, that, that enough Brits will, will see the kinds of terms that are on offer. They'll ask for some kind of second referendum to verify, and then there won't ever be kind of pulling out. I don't personally think that's the likeliest outcome, but you'd probably better off asking our
1: Brussels correspondents. Yeah, you and can keep running Western around States. in circles on that one. Okay, yeah. so so much for this awful year that was. Let's go through each of our favorite stories from the year, and I am inserting a couple of stipulations here. One is Trump is not allowed to be one of the entries, uh, and the other is Brexit can't be one of the categories. I think people are probably tired of these topics, right? Or if not tired of them, they have plenty of other outlets where they can go to hear stories of you know, recapping the election and recapping the Brexit vote. So with that in mind, uh, Alex, what was your favorite story of 2016?
2: So my favorite story was pretty recent, actually. It was India just out of nowhere getting rid of its biggest denomination bills. And it's so interesting because it's almost it's a trendy idea, right? Like we had a book out this year about the end of cash and everyone talking about moving to digital currencies. Wait, and you mean Ken
1: Rogoff had one of those, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We didn't personally, right, but right. Ken Rogoff, yes. Yeah. There R- was a R- big book Real quick out. for our listeners that yeah. aren't familiar with the story, uh, what exactly did India do in this demonetization scheme?
2: So it essentially just said, you know, the two biggest bills that they had in circulation, um, they weren't going to have in circulation anymore.
1: Right. So. They asked everybody to bring them in. It's like if the yes. U.S. had said, "Sorry, you're not allowed to use hundred-dollar bills or whatever anymore. Bring them to your nearest bank, and we'll give you a hundred bucks in your bank account on deposit, okay? Or we'll give you five twenties or whatever, but you can no longer use hundred-dollar bills. Something like that.
2: Yes. The fi- I mean, it just goes to show that. You can have the best ideas in the world, or you know, do something that seems like a good idea in theory, and have it completely fall apart in implementation because the thing's been a disaster. I mean, we our colleague David in India has been um, covering this very well, and he's been talking about you know, there's just ATM lines there, like people are having trouble getting paid. You know, a lot of the a lot of the sort of like gray economy type work, like service work, people haven't been able to get tips because it's not like a official, you know, way of getting paid. And that usually happens in in large denomination bills. And so just the actual like human impact of this has been really staggering. And it's been fascinating to see.
0: Large denomination in this context is like what, $15 or something, right? I mean yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just necessarily, you know, drug dealers with their stashes of hundreds.
1: And so the the rationale behind this was what? To cut down on black market activity, which is conducted often in these high denomination bills, but instead, perversely, it's had the impact of hurting people that you, I guess, wouldn't expect to be hurt, and yet people who are, in fact, the most vulnerable because they also depend on some of this uh, black market activity. Is that is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when the the system is sort of set up inefficiently to start with, um, you do end up having these sort of like leakages outside of the system. Like there are, you know, like with service work or, you know, goes from service workers to drug dealers or people trying to take money out of the country. But if the like system in itself is not terribly efficient, then there's going to be more of that. So it's interesting to see sort of how how that's playing out in real time.
1: Okay. Matt, what was your favorite story of 2016? So the year's
0: not over yet, but I think this is probably going to be the weirdest political story of the year, which is what's been happening in South Korea, where essentially it's been revealed that a close friend of the president has been uh, running the country effectively from behind the scenes, extorting money from companies, and running also a shamanistic cult. The president of South Korea is the daughter of... Uh, a former dictator of South Korea, was very successful, in Park Chung-hee. And she ended up having a very traumatic childhood because both her mother and her father were assassinated when she, were, when she was a teen young adult. After that happened, after her mother were, was killed by a North Korean assassin who was aiming for her father, uh, she ended up coming under the sway of this man who uh, professed to be able to speak with her spirit and serve as a channel with the spirit of her dead mother. And apparently, you know, lack of having friends or whatever. She was, you know, being cloistered as part of this, you know, presidential family and, and having responsibilities of effectively becoming the first lady. Uh, she ended up believing this for some reason. He died of old age, but she ended up becoming very good friends with his daughter, uh, and continuing to have a lot of confidence in her and trusting her with all sorts of personal decisions. And so the the scandal became really a big deal after A Samsung uh, tablet had been found in the office of uh, the president's friend that was unlocked that featured uh, selfies of her with the president as well as a whole bunch of classified documents uh, from like the morning security briefing that the president got from her intelligence agencies. And South Korean news, of course, have been having a field day with this. The The woman who she'd fled to Germany but came back and there's now going to be some, I think, kind of trial uh, associated with it. But what, part of what's interesting is that now that there have been all sorts of, you know, half joking, half serious theories of, well, given everything we know so far that seems true, what else, you know, that seems kind of weird and unexplainable might be attributable to the fact that. The president was under essentially the spell of a a shaman. Just a very bizarre uh, situation, and and the legislature is is in the midst of uh, impeaching her, and it seems likely that's probably going to occur in the next few months.
1: What are the chances you guys think that the current president-elect of the United States is also under the spell of a shaman? No comment?
2: Depends on what the shaman is (laughs) in this case. Probably not a human.
1: Possibly not.
2: the spirit of the 1950s, Maybe.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. And everything that that would entail. Jesus. Um, Okay. Now we're going to do the very last book recommendations of 2016.
2: Uh, Alex. Uh, So I'm going to recommend SPQR uh, by Mary Beard. It's a book about Roman history, and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, It's just a very sort of disciplined look. Not only at what happened in ancient Rome, but what we can know about what happened. the fact that it's both really intellectually rigorous and also really compellingly written is really just wonderful like it's it's a great it's a great uh,
1: way to write a book and she's a famous Cambridge historian, yes. I believe, right? yeah. Did, did you see not long ago when on Twitter some dude who was not a historian tried to mansplain her the history oh of Rome? Oh, my
2: God. You're kidding.
1: I am not kidding. No, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> no. a, they're arguing about what
0: f- caused their own empire to fall. That's yes.
2: hilarious. I would not go up against Mary Beard on most things. She was very nice about it, but yeah. yeah. He really This yeah.
1: didn't work out well yeah, for her. was yeah, like, I saw you I in middle imagine. school or something. And she's like, yeah. okay. I am going to pair your recommendation <laughs> with that Twitter exchange. In other words read SPQR, and also go check out this exchange where Mary Beard schools some mansplainer on the Twitter. Uh, Matt, your favorite book of the year.
0: My book of the year uh, recommendation is The Habsburg Empire, A New History by Peter Judson. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, as sort of a you know personal note, a lot of my ancestors came from the area that was once the Habsburg Empire, so it's interesting to you know, learn about that, but also... Um, It's, I think, relevant today as this is probably the last really uh, successful multi-ethnic, multilingual,
1: multi-religious society. Guys, thanks so much for doing this. And thanks for all of your appearances on Alpha Chat this year. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. And coming up next on the show, what do people misunderstand about the white working class in the U.S. and why it voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump? The same goes in the U.K., And the decision to leave the EU. We're going to discuss that with law professor Joan Williams, founder of the Center for Work Life Law at the University of California Hastings College of the Law. She's also the author of the book Reshaping the Work Family Debate Why Men and Class Matter. And we're going to be discussing her article in the Harvard Business Review just after the US election. Its title, What So Many People Don't Get About the US Working Class. And she has also contributed a similar piece about the UK to the Financial Times. Joan, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat.
3: Delighted to be here.
1: So Here's where I want to start. You write that Trump's success was driven by the class culture gap and that the white working class, and this is a quote, resents professionals but admires the rich. And I think this sparked quite a lot of conversation. Why don't you just start by telling us what you mean by that?
3: What The white working class in the United States, and although the article said the U.S. working class, I was really writing about the white working class. They have a big gap in the way they live ordinary life as compared to professionals. They eat different kinds of foods. They go to different kinds of restaurants. They have different kinds of social networks, different kinds of family ties. So there's really a chasm between the way white workers do things and the way professionals do things that Professionals are often completely unaware of, or else they just think there's a big difference between them and lower class people, namely the professionals have taste and lower class people don't. That class culture gap was expressed in the election in a lot of different ways. I mean, just to, to give a really, really concrete example, Hillary Clinton spent a lot of time talking about breaking the glass ceiling, and that kind of didn't serve her well with respect to white working class people, either women or men, because what does the breaking glass ceiling mean? It means highly educated professional women should be able to get the same kinds of jobs that highly educated professional men get. Why should the working class care? They don't. (laughs) They just hear some privileged woman talking about how she doesn't have quite enough privilege. It's very off-putting to them.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, what about the other part of that formulation? The resentment of the professionals, but why the admiration of the rich at the same time?
3: Many white working class people in the United States, you know, they don't want to have the same kind of food, families, networks, friendships that professionals have because they think professionals often are sort of pretentious phonies who just suck up to each other all day in the office. I mean, Why should they think that? Uh, There's a lot of politicking, of course, that goes on in professional environments, and They feel like in the kinds of jobs they have, which are often technical jobs, we're talking here about the men, they don't have to do that kind of politicking. And they think that kind of politicking is kind of beneath any grown man's dignity. There's a big gender component here. And so they don't really want to become professionals. What they want to do is to have their own forms of food, friendship, family, but with more money. And so they look up at the rich and they go like, I can do that. I could love that. I want to be exactly the same kind of person I am, but with more money. That's why they admire the rich and why they view professionals with a lot of resentment and suspicion uh, another element of this of course is that many white working class people's have you know they don't know anyone who's extremely rich reality doesn't get in the way whereas professionals boss them around all the time
1: yeah i was reminded of your paper today actually when i came across a tweet by an economics writer uh, that i follow very closely named steve randy waldman and i'm paraphrasing but the point he made was that people generally like it when the people who boss them around Themselves come under the thumb of an even bigger boss or bully kind of a sense of uh, inequality or perceived economic inequities uh can itself be corrosive uh to things like freedom and liberty and tolerance and to the other values that a lot of us hold dear
3: mhm and the The other thing that Trump did so adeptly is there's a there's a lot of feeling rules that certainly that elites have and certainly reform-minded elites have. You're supposed to feel sorry for the poor. You're supposed to feel respectful of people of color. You're supposed to feel empathetic towards immigrants. And you're supposed to be respectful of professional women. And Trump broke all those taboos. He was misogynistic. He was racist. When he wasn't racist, he was racially insensitive. And, you know, at some level, none of that is excusable. Let me be the first to say that, and I hope not the last. But in many ways, elites helped Trump make that feel delicious, make that feel like a delicious thumb in the eye to the elites. Because the elites spend so much time trying to understand the the gaps that separate their their world from the world of the poor and the world of say African Americans, and they spend absolutely no time typically at least before this election in recent years, they spend absolutely no time trying to understand respectfully the ways of living in the white working class and you know that's just a failure which has been around for uh, well over a century of reform minded elites in the united states taking white workers seriously as part of their reform coalition
1: sure and uh before we get to the points Uh, that you raised in the paper, uh, the specific things that everybody should keep in mind. I want to raise one other issue um, that you also touch on, which is the trends in work between the genders, right? So we know that in the last couple of decades, for instance, um, women have been graduating from college at a higher rate than men. And we know that the jobs that are being created and the jobs that are expected to be created into the future are jobs that traditionally, uh, had a higher share being done by women. And so one of the, uh, reactions of economists and other social scientists is to say, well, men are gonna have to adapt. They're gonna have to take jobs that traditionally were associated with women doing them. They're considered, uh, I think the phrase was pink collar jobs. And you make the point that when men hear that, that it's, it's sort of damaging to their self-esteem, that that adjustment is not gonna be as simple as saying, well, that job pays more and it's an available job, so just take it because you have to. There's a kind of recoiling. There's a kind of uh, resentment towards that as well.
3: I think there's two two elements to this. I mean, first of all, you know, do I wish manliness worked differently? Yes, I do. I've worked on gender for, for decades. And it doesn't work differently for elite men any more than it works differently for white working class men. You do not see elite men swarming librarians' jobs. Why? they're not very well paid, they're not very high prestige, they have a very, very flat promotion cycle. You can't get very far ahead in them. They are structured like traditionally feminine jobs are structured. Low paid, little career advancement, little respect. Why should any man want to go there unless, you know, you have the few unconventional men who are just like cultural entrepreneurs, God bless them, they would become librarians. But white working class men, they don't, they don't want pink collar jobs for many of the same reasons. They're not well paid, very little promotion. And in addition, like the librarian job, they signal femininity. And, you know, we don't see elite men swarming jobs that signal femininity. There's no reason we should assume that Working class men want jobs that signal femininity. And I think as a feminist, as someone who's worked on women in work for over a quarter century, I think the best thing, not only for men, but also for women without college degrees, is to invent a new kind of job that is not the sort of pink collar, devalued, underpaid, uh, dead-end work that pink-collar jobs traditionally have been. I mean, a lot of the kinds of work that women traditionally have done, service work, is going to be handed over to humans interacting with various kinds of robots. I mean, at some level, of course, all you need to do is regender these jobs. I mean, is a nursing job someone that requires a gentle, caring nature coded feminine? Or is a nursing job a highly technical job where you need to be interested in science and able to do heavy lifting? So part of this is just that jobs that are traditionally held by women are thought of in feminine ways rather than masculine ways, which just shows you how easy it is to re-gender a given set of tasks. I think we need to start to invent the kinds of jobs in the United States that are not jobs for programmers or checkout at Walmart. And if we want to do that, we're going to have to put our mind to that. This is just another intellectual task. How can we reinvent a good job for somebody without an elite college degree? We have been spending pretty much zero amount of time trying to figure this out.
1: Okay. And that actually provides uh, the perfect segue to start looking at your points to know, the points that you include uh, in your article in HPR. Number one is understand that working class means middle class, not poor.
3: Yeah. I mean, we are literally speechless about class in the United States. We literally don't have the words to talk about it. So we're talking past each other. Now, the people who the media are now calling white working class, which is a great step forward, they don't call themselves working class. They call themselves middle class. Professionals, they just refer to as the rich. If you look at the income distribution in the United States, many professionals are the rich, namely the top, like, 20% of Americans. What happens is that elites always obsess about which fraction of the elite they're in. So if you're earning $200,000 a year, you're looking up to the truly wealthy and going like, oh, I'm just middle class. But if you actually look at the American income distribution, by any objective measure, you are rich. And the people who are in the middle, fifty percent of Americans, um, median income around sixty-four thousand dollars. This is a family income, I should stress. You know, if we talked right, those people would be called middle class. But it's very confusing because we use the word term middle class differently depending on your the class that you're in. We also use the term working class differently because in progressive circles, when you talk about the working class, which is what elite particularly calls the middle class, you are talking about the poor. Now, the poor are really different from this uh, sometimes called the missing middle. So the missing middle, again, is median income, $64,000. The poor, which is the bottom 30% of American families, have an, a median family income of only about $19,000. This is a really different group. And this has proved just poisonously confusing because, for example, I quote in the essay a friend of mine saying, I don't understand why the working class didn't vote for Hillary. She had all kinds of things that appealed to them, like paid family leave and higher minimum wage. Higher minimum wage is not what the people in this middle 15% want. Uh, one of the comments said, oh, good, I can starve more slowly. This was from a former blue-collar worker. These people don't want work, jobs at McDonald's for $15 an hour instead of $7.25 an hour, they want the kinds of jobs their fathers had, which are jobs that provide a solid, not glamorous, um, but middle-class life to people without college degrees.
1: Yeah. And uh, this called to mind the reaction of a lot of economists and economics commentators after the election as well. The reaction essentially was that both the left and the right have kind of been looking at this wrong. Uh, The right has been emphasizing just general prosperity brought about by lower taxes or limited government, at least that's the rhetoric. The left has been emphasizing a safety net whose benefits proportionately would go mostly to the poor, but not as much uh, to the middle class. Um, And so the reaction has been, well, actually, if we look at What the middle class uh, is saying now, they want jobs of a similar kind that they once saw their parents have and of the kind that they expected to have with or without higher education. Um, I suspect we're going to see quite a lot more uh, social science being done on this uh, in the years ahead. Uh, But it also provides a nice transition to your second point, which is understand working class resentment of the poor.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. I think there's two points I'd like to follow up. That's the first, and the second is, is it realistic to want the kind of job your dad had? Why do um, the white working class resent the poor? And here, race is important, because the black working class does not resent the poor. (laughs) The the black working class has very much a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I attitude towards the poor. The white working class sees itself as having lived lives of rigid self-discipline, think about the jobs they have, they have to be on time, they have to not have attitude, they can only take breaks when they're told. In order to reach settled living in a working class context, you have to have an incredible amount of self-discipline. And so people who have done that and kept their noses clean, a common expression, Look at the Democrats, and they think all the Democrats care about is the poor. And people in working-class families, they usually know people, if not in their family, which is common, at least in their circle, who didn't keep their nose clean. They got pregnant early. They had drug problems. They drove cars too fast and got arrested. They did lots of risky behaviors that these settled living white working class families avoided by living these lives of extremely rigorous self-discipline, often through with the help of the church, the military, and other institutions that are designed to keep you on the straight and narrow. And so that's why the white working class resents the poor. They think, why have I gone to work every day for 40 years to a job that I hate? in order to support my family, and now they're taking my hard-earned tax dollars to give money to those hard-living poor who never exercised the discipline that I exercised. Now, you know, I'm just a pretty conventional Democrat, liberal, progressive, we don't, can't even have language for that anymore, but I, I'm one of them. I'm on the left coast here, and I understand that there are structural reasons why i mean the drug deaths for example are despair deaths versus because these people are structurally disadvantaged i totally get that that's where i live but why should white workers uh just to give an example why should they be happy about situation a, a situation where 30% of poor families get childcare subsidies and almost 0% of these middle-class families get child care subsidies. You know what? They're not happy about it. And why should they be? One really important message is the social safety net. It's, it's so important. We have so little of it. But to focus exclusively on the social safety net instead of on good jobs for hardworking people, it's just gonna it's going to get us where we are. And I'm not sure that's where we want to be.
1: Okay. Point number three is understand how class divisions have translated into geography.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot is being made um, right now in the United States about the distinction between rural and urban and how this is, in, in some ways, you can read the Trump election as the the revenge of the rural. It's very true in the United States that if you look at where the Trump voters are, Um, They're in the vast middle. And if you look at where the Democratic voters, they tend to be on the coasts. And for many years, it's just been accepted that rural areas will be backwaters and they won't have much going on economically. And so it's not too surprising that those rural voters are pretty, pretty furious about that. And what they want is, again, what You know, what white working class people want also on the coasts. And this is also true of working class people of whatever color. They want jobs that are accessible to them without elite degrees that give them a solid middle class life.
1: Yeah, I think we can also see how all of these themes are connected as well, because it sounds so simple to hear somebody say, look, I just want to be in a place where I'm close to my family, including my extended family, and I want a job that will help me provide for them. And yet those two things in a way uh, are being cleaved apart. The jobs uh, in many cases, uh, the high productivity, high paying jobs have migrated to the cities. And so it's easy to say, well, why don't you just pack up and move? And yet being close to your family is also a very human thing. It's something that uh, I think a lot of us just have instinctively, and I think it's a natural human longing, and yet it's hard to combine uh, those two things now. Uh, I think that cleavage uh, is something that maybe is under-discussed.
3: At some level, wanting to live close to your family is just a very human thing, but the sense of entitlement to live close to your family is very class-based. Because in professional circles, we expect that children will go um, away to college, often very far away, and we accept that they will often not live in the same area because of their jobs. Professionals have national job networks. And so part of the feeling rules of being a professional are that you have to accept that, and that's part of being a good parent. That's not true. Of people who are non-professionals. So they not only have the very human desire often to live close to their family, they feel an entitlement to live close to their family. Also, the families play very different roles in these two circles. Among professionals, the key ties among adult children and their parents are purely emotional very often and perhaps seeing them at holidays. In working-class families, the ties with adult children are often much deeper and involve childcare. sometimes daily. They involve family ties, are the way you get your house repairs done, perhaps your house improvements done. Um, there's a lot of swapping of labor, because that's the way you get good quality labor if you don't have market power. And so there are a lot of family ties that are very, very different and often deeper than in professional contexts because um, the friendship circles of professionals are tend to be b- very broad but quite shallow. That's partly because that's what you need for a successful professional career. Friendship ties um for uh for working class people and this is true of the poor actually as well they tend they tend to be smaller, denser networks where you have lots of different relationships with a small group of people, all of whom know each other. And so one of the things I think that elites don't realize is that moving away from home has very different consequences and feels very different for people who are non-elites. And in this way, the, the working class is much more similar to the poor than it is to professionals. But I think in many ways, that's a constraint we have to think about and say how many decent, not great, but Decent, solid jobs can we create in the middle of the country by the kind of industrial policy that's been so successful in Germany, making really great scissors, and the kinds of reinventing jobs that involve service work that interacts with robots in a way where it's high enough value add to create a middle class life.
1: Sure. Number four is if you want to connect with working class voters, place economics at the center. And number five is avoid the temptation to write off blue collar resentment as racism.
3: If that's really advice for Democrats and progressives, because in many ways, the issues, the cultural issues that really have captured the imagination of the left, LGTBQ for one, um, people of color, the poor, those are not going to be things that bind them together with white workers. And, and you know, at some level, the left isn't going to sell out um, gay people uh, in order to bind to white work, bind white to white workers, and, you know, nor should they. So that's just not going to work. But what could work is saying to people, all work is dignified and deserves a decent wage. We could create a cross-class, cross-race coalition around that principle. And that's why I think it's so important that when Democrats think economic issues, they don't just think of the social safety net. They think of the decent job as really the core policy alternative. Um, And after all, that's what Trump is doing. He's signaling that left, right, and center. Now, is he going to deliver? Different issue. But he understands how to connect with this group.
1: Uh, Joan, let me also lift a quote from your FT article, actually, not the one in HBR. You write that and this is quoting you, being British is one of the few high status categories available to working class whites. The same is true of their counterparts in the US. I myself was a little bit startled to read that, uh, not because I doubt that it's true, I suspect it is, but because that is such an uncomfortable uh, thing to talk about and yet so important to talk about as well.
3: Yeah. I mean, everybody plays up their axes that look of privilege that make them look good and plays down their axes of disadvantage that make them look bad. That's just, you know, that's just called being sensible or being politically savvy or keeping your dignity or something like that. So it makes sense that for white working class people, particularly since, you know, they don't get no respect, that they are very focused on the elements of their identity that they feel give them fundamental dignity. And being an American, being a being a Brit, that's a good example. And that's again, that's something that elites don't understand because elites tend to play up the fact that that they're professionals. That's what makes them look good, both to the outside world and to themselves. So, if you at an elite party, what pe- what do people ask? What do you do? Because that gives you a chance to brag about how great you are and how important you are and what you do.
1: Yeah there's there's another reason though that that sentiment I think made me made me a bit uncomfortable uh, even as I think we all should be confronting it and it's this it's it's something that I struggle with personally because I don't really know the answer to it but you might have some thoughts on it here it is let's assume for a second that Those of us who are not white working class uh, come to understand the white working class, if not perfectly, as well as we can. And not only that, but we uh, do our damnedest to make ourselves uh, more relatable um, and to communicate our own thoughts and values uh, to the white working class. And then we also push for policies and to do things that will improve their economic circumstances uh, and ease their resentments on the one hand- And then on the other hand, I don't know where to draw the line between that and making the point that everyone from all categories of life are subject to twists and turns and to life's vagaries and that we all have to be responsible in some sense for doing our best uh, to affect our own outcomes. And obviously, there's a role for luck and circumstance and we should all be sensitive to that. But that these things that drive their resentments – are legitimate but they're not unique to the white working class and we should also recognize that because if 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 anything it, it would almost feel condescending not to i myself wasn't very articulate in uh, in stating all that um but what do you what do you think about that how do we how do we broach this issue between empathy and understanding on the one hand and then also Asking for the same acceptance of responsibility that we ask of all other people.
3: I mean, I think there's a sense certainly among some people that the white working class is a bunch of whiners and they're not willing to invest in their own education. And yet they're demanding the jobs their fathers had. And those jobs are gone due to to globalization and just grow up, stop whining and get over it. There is that sense. And I think that, frankly, that is sort of, uh, it's, it's clueless from like six different directions, and let me talk about a couple of them. First of all, it's much harder for these people to get a college education. They're likely to end up paying many tens of thousands of dollars, which is a very, very serious matter for them, to get a crappy education that doesn't even get them a better job, but gets them a huge debt. So for us to say just get a college education is just class clueless. Um, Secondly, to get a college education is different for them in the way it is for professionals in that once you get an education, it drives a wedge, an uncomfortable wedge between you and your family. Instead of bonding around how great that museum show was— All of a sudden, people go, oh, that's your education talking. You're not talking like us. You're not thinking like us. You're judging us. What kind of snob have you become? That is not a choice that professionals ever have to make in training them for new jobs. And then, as we've mentioned, in order to move across the country— that again is an entirely different experience if you're privileged than if you're working class first of all you have a great job waiting for you you already know they, they may pay your living expenses you have a whole bunch of other young hip professionals who are your social group and expect to be your social group whereas in the context of a a, a working class family and this is often true you know regardless of race Your family doesn't understand why you've moved so far away. They think it's really um, disloyal. And they were counting on you to engage in that exchange of favors that families support each other with so they can understand why they're deprived of your um, daily support. It's just an entirely different cultural experience. And I think that there is some element of like, just put up, shut up bring yourself up by your bootstraps. I think there's something in there, but I also think there's just a staggering amount of, of incomprehension of what it's really like to be a white working class person and condescension because you don't understand just what that world looks and feels like.
1: Joan Williams, the book is Reshaping the Work-Family Debate, Why Men and Class Matter. She's also the founder of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, and finally, you can find the article that we just discussed in the Harvard Business Review. The title is What So Many People Don't Get About the U.S. Working Class. Joan, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: And that is all the time we have for today's show. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number. So for our overseas listeners, the country code is PLUS1. Or you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Please leave a review and give us a rating on iTunes to help other people find the show. ft.com forward slash alpha chat is where you can find show notes and links to the topics we discussed today. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. And finally, today's topic was maybe a little bit too delicate to do one of my weirdo Amy Keen thank yous, but she is the producer and editor of this podcast and she's wonderful. So thanks, Amy, for everything,
3: and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.